0: Amen. Thank you, ladies. Peter would like that song. Because we have a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the last verse of my text today, which is 1 Peter three thirteen to 22 says, "...by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. We know our Redeemer lives." That is a great song for what we're going to talk about this morning. It's good to be with you, and it's good to be in 1 Peter. The first 35 verses of this book teach us about a great salvation that we all enjoy. And then in verses 2-11, Peter begins to transition to the application of that salvation to pilgrims. We are to live as pilgrims. We're not to think like people who are citizens of this world. And his first great illustration of that was submission. That is, pilgrims... Don't submit to authority the same way citizens do. Citizens of this world want to do their own thing. They don't like being told what to do. But we see every authority as put there by God. And therefore we submit joyfully, even as Jesus Christ, the great model for us, submitted joyfully. And that took us through 3.12, which concluded the discussion on submission. Beginning at 3.13 and running through 4.19, is the second great way that pilgrims differ from citizens. And that is in how we suffer. And really it's just kind of a subset of what we were talking about because the hardest things in life to submit to are pain and suffering, trials and difficulties. Peter is going to give us, I believe, the richest text on suffering anywhere in the New Testament between 3.13 and 4.19. This first section, these first ten verses, focus in on the condition of his readers who are beginning to experience a particular kind of trial. That is, persecution. They're experiencing opposition for their faith. Now, in this long section, there are going to be a whole bunch of commands for us to obey relative to trials and suffering. But in these ten verses, there are just two commands. And they're there at the end of 14 and beginning of 15. He says, Do not be afraid of their terror. So persecution's coming. Don't be afraid. Second command is beginning of verse 15. Sanctify, set apart the Lord God in your hearts. So don't be afraid and honor Christ as holy. Those are the two things that we are commanded to do. The question is, How can we obey those two commands? How under pressure can we avoid fear? And how in trial can we bring glory to Christ? In 1553, John Calvin from Geneva wrote to five young Frenchmen who were about to be convicted and executed for preaching the gospel in France. And he said, Since it appears as though God would use your blood to seal his truth, There is nothing better for you than to prepare yourselves for that end, beseeching him so to subdue you to his good pleasure, that nothing may hinder you from following whithersoever he shall call. Since it pleases him to employ you to the death in maintaining his quarrel, he will strengthen your hands in the fight and will not suffer a single drop of your blood to be shed in vain. So, How can we prepare ourselves for the fight? God has been pleased to enlist us in his quarrel. How can we be prepared? Well, let's begin at verse 13. We're just going to walk through this text. I want you to see six things about righteous suffering that I hope will help us in the days to come. Verse 13. Peter has just quoted Psalm 34. Longest quotation in the book. He's been meditating on that psalm at the end of that psalm, he attaches a blessing. Those who are following the Lord and enjoying this blessed life. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He is for you. His ears are open to your prayers. And that launches this section on evil people opposing us. Verse 13, who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? We read here the promise in righteous suffering. Now, I will admit right away that a whole lot of commentators disagree with me. Some are going to argue that he's simply saying, listen, be a good citizen, be a good person, most people will leave you alone. The context suggests that that's not what Peter's thinking. In fact, he's going to be discussing for the next chapter and a half how people are not going to leave you alone, and in fact, his readers are experiencing persecution. He's almost certainly not saying... That you are going to, you're not really going to experience any temporal harm or suffering because you're under God's blessing. No, we're going to experience a lot of suffering. In a few in the next chapter, he's going to say, "Don't think it's strange when the fiery trial comes on you." So, what is Peter saying here? Well, I think he's saying what Paul says in Romans eight: "If God be for us, who can be against us?" We are going to experience opposition if we do right, especially in this world in which we live, this fallen world. They can do many things to us, but there's one thing they can't do to us. They can't harm us. They can't do anything that causes us permanent damage. Think about the difference of real soldiers with real enemies shooting live rounds of ammunition at them, and soldiers who are in war games. Now they try to simulate all the same pressures and all the same dangers, but you're pretty sure they're not out to kill you. Whereas our enemy is out to kill us, but we're given this promise that they can't harm us. We are, If we are suffering righteously, if, if we are in the center of God's will, then they might kill us, but they can't harm us. And that's the foundation. That's the principle that's going to go through this entire section. Confidence in God. How can we prepare ourselves to not be afraid? Well, God's in control. So what is our response during righteous suffering? Look at verse 14. But and if, Peter writes, you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you. Happy are you. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. What is the right response during righteous suffering? Reason biblically. Think correctly. Think as a pilgrim. Peter says, If you suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. That is, that word happy... Peter heard that word. He heard it years before when Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount said, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And Peter says, if you are suffering for righteousness' sake, Jesus said, you're blessed. Let that sink in. Because in order for us to Respond rightly when the pressure comes, we need to think about the pressure, about the trial, about the suffering, the way Jesus Christ prepared us. He says, you know what? What a blessing. What a blessing. This is evidence that you belong to God. This is evidence that you are going against the tide. This is evidence that you are speaking for him. There are so many wonderful things that attach to the fact that the world hates us. If the world doesn't hate us, if the world thinks we're just fine, if we don't generate opposition, if we are not going against the flow, then Peter would be deeply concerned about us. Jesus said, we are blessed when we suffer. Now, the rest of the text, especially 4.1-19, are going to elaborate a number of those blessings. In fact, I think I get to speak to you again in a couple of weeks on 4.12-19, and it's going to be a commentary on that statement. The blessings of suffering. But there's a second thing Peter says about our response during righteous suffering. He says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Focus unwaveringly. Peter loves to draw on the Old Testament in this book. We've been seeing that throughout the series. Here, he draws on Isaiah 8. He quoted 8 back in, earlier in this chapter, back in, verse, back in chapter 2, verse 8. He goes to chapter 8 again. I'm not going to have you turn there. You will notice that covering 10 verses morning, I'm going to keep speaking quickly. So trust me on Isaiah 8. But here's what's going on there this wicked king Ahaz is being threatened by his two northern neighbors Israel, directly to the north, under Pekah, son of Romalia, and Rezin, which is this. Aramaean kingdom, which has been a thorn in their flesh for a long time. Well, Aram and Israel have formed an alliance against the Assyrians. And Ahaz is being pressured to join the alliance. And they're basically saying, if you don't join our alliance, we're going to attack you. And Ahaz is extremely nervous, because he doesn't think he can handle this confederacy. And Isaiah, the prophet, comes to Ahaz and says, do not fear the confederacy, Or be afraid of it. But sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. You see the principle here. There is something that can drive out fear of man. And what is it? Fear of God. The more conscious I am of God's presence, the less conscious I am of the persecutor's power. Persecutors always want to be in control. They think they can dominate you and and ruin your life. They can't. They can't bring any harm to us. And when God's big in our eyes, when we focus unwaveringly on him, this is worship. What will prepare you best for worshiping in the midst of a trial? Worshiping all the time. That is, this unwavering focus. That is, we don't wait for the moment of pressure to set apart the Lord as Christ in our hearts. No, that's our life. We are continually setting apart the Lord as Christ in our hearts. We are regularly worshiping him. And then when the pressure comes, when the trial comes, when we're asked to act contrary to him and his will, we say, no, no, you you don't know the Christ I serve. He's, He's... It was Polycarp who said when he was 86 years old you are to turn away from the Lord deny him. He said for 86 years he's done me no harm how could I deny my Lord in Christ and they burned him at the stake. But he had walked with the Lord all that time. It was natural if I can say it that way to walk with him now in the pressure in the trial. And then third we need to respond apologetically. Now I'm Obviously not using that word in our modern sense. Because when you and I make, give apologies, we're usually in the wrong and are saying, hey, I'm so sorry I did that. But the word apologetic, and some of you are taking apologetics, refers to defense. Look at what Peter says here. Be ready always to give an answer. That's an apologia, an apologetic, to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So in the midst of a trial, if we're reasoning biblically, we have the divine point of view that a trial is a blessing. If we are focused unwaveringly, God is bigger than the trial, then we'll be able to speak for him. We'll be able to respond apologetically. So always be prepared. You know, I I don't really want to allude to the Boy Scouts, because the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts have adopted a lot of philosophies that I'm disappointed by. But for a long time, you could allude to them, because what was their motto? Be prepared. All right? And they're trying to get young men to be ready to be men. And they, they teach them skills, and they put them in wilderness settings and all that to get them ready to be men. So your preparation is a process. Be prepared is not something you switch on on Tuesday. That is, if you've been in the world and squandering your time and not spending time in the Word and not praying, and all of a sudden at work, you're faced with a tense pressure situation in which you need to be godly, it'll be really hard for you to speak for Christ. Because you won't be prepared. You are prepared to give a defense. To give an answer. The Word implies intellectual preparation. It implies study We're not just spiritually and emotionally prepared, but we have studied. We are ready to give an answer when the opportunity arises. And notice what we are giving an answer about. They are asking us a reason of our hope. Have you noticed how significant hope has been in this text in 1 Peter? Hope runs all the way through the book. Why? Because we're pilgrims. And pilgrims are living for another life. And therefore, our lives are dominated by hope. Hope will sustain you in the midst of a trial, and hope is exactly the thing that the unbelievers don't have. It's a huge difference between a pilgrim and a citizen. And they see you able to have joy in the midst of a trial. They see you able to stand firm on your beliefs even though they're under attack. They see you with hope rooted in Christ and they say, how can you be like that? You say, hey, I'm glad you asked. I can tell you all about this. I can explain to you precisely where this hope comes from. It is in the living Redeemer. So, We need to be prepared to give a response during righteous suffering. What are the characteristics of righteous suffering? Let's pick up our reading, middle of verse 15. I'm sorry that I'm squeezing four messages in here. You can read these and dwell on them more later. But look what he says. We are to give this defense with meekness and fear. Literally with gentleness And with respect, that is, I think the fear here is referring to my response to the persecutors. That is, when we are defending ourselves, well, when we're defending Christ, we can start thinking we're defending ourselves and we can become defensive and we can become irritable and we can be, we can be brash. It can bring the worst out in us. But if our focus is on Christ, then suffering for him will humble us. So that humility is the first characteristic of righteous suffering. And I don't want to be judgmental about people who suffer. But when I see somebody undergoing suffering and they are arrogant, and they are, look at the stand I'm taking for Christ. If other people were just as courageous as me then I wonder if they're suffering for Christ. Because real suffering unites us with Christ and creates in us the humility that Christ displayed as he suffered. Furthermore, a second characteristic of righteous suffering is that it's characterized by innocence. Let's continue. Having a good conscience. That whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers... They may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation, your good conduct in Christ. Having a good conscience. Our persecution is unjust. Peter, imagine this, thinks that one day the enemies of Christians will look at their conduct and say, What you are doing is evil. They will call evil good and good evil. Can you imagine that happening? Right now, in the state of Victoria, in Australia, they have passed a Change or Suppression Conversion Practices Prohibition Bill 2020. What is now considered evil in Victoria, Australia? Well, quoting one evangelical pastor there, he said, This bill criminalizes any prayers, prayers are explicitly mentioned, any prayers or conversations in which one person aims to persuade another that pursuing certain sexual activity is not the best course of action. I mean, it is incredibly broadly worded, Bill. That if I say to somebody, listen, I can help you overcome that same-sex attraction, I am doing evil. If I, if I say to somebody, you know, you really shouldn't be cheating on your wife, I'm doing evil. That I don't have the right, it is immoral for me to correct someone's sexual wrongs. They are calling evil good and good evil. And I'm praying for pastors in Victoria, Australia, because in fact, Christian ministry is all about telling people that here's the standard of God, and if you're not meeting it, you will come under the judgment of God. And that's what this world does not want to hear. You say, well, that's Australia. It's the other side of the world. It's coming. And in some cases, it's here. We must suffer having a good conscience, having good conduct. For it is better, verse 17, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for doing well than for evil doing. That is a characteristic of righteous suffering is that it's righteous. God forbid we be like people who bomb abortion clinics and say, we're suffering for Jesus when we get arrested for people who violate common sense government laws about building codes and whatnot in their ministries and say, we're suffering for Jesus. No, you're not. You're suffering for being evil. Righteous suffering requires being righteous. Now, we're not going to be perfect, but we are carrying out the mission of Christ in this world. And Peter says, listen, I don't want to hear that you're suffering because you're being a busybody or an evil person and, and getting involved in things you shouldn't. But when you suffer for doing righteousness, well now, God is pleased and he is with you. And in fact, the third characteristic of this righteous suffering is vindication. Notice, in verse 16, they who accuse you, who falsely accuse you, are ashamed. They are brought to shame. Look across the page please at chapter 2. At least it's across the page for me. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. That's the Lord Jesus. And he that believes on him shall not be confounded. Well, that word confounded is this same word. To be brought to shame. To be caused to lose everything. So Peter here, when he says, those who falsely accuse you will be ashamed, sometimes, Maybe in this life, they'll see your innocent suffering, they'll see your sweet spirit, they'll see your godly response, and they'll be ashamed that they persecuted you. Sometimes that may happen, praise the Lord. But I think Peter's talking about final judgment here. There is a day when everyone who has opposed us, Everyone who has persecuted us, everyone who has attacked our good conduct in Christ as we have been exercising, working within the will of God, they will be the ones brought to shame. We never need to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. We never need to be ashamed that our hope will fail one day. Our hope will never shame us. But their hope, it will fail. They will be confounded. Do not allow yourself to believe that your righteous suffering, that the person who is opposing you or persecuting you, somehow has the upper hand. No! Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. He's in control. And that brings us to verse 18, the pattern of righteous suffering. Back in chapter 2, Peter said, Submit! Submit to government, submit to your master. And then he used the example of Jesus Christ as the great submitter. Hereunto you are called because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. And now Peter does the same thing. He says, listen, you will face opposition. You will be opposed. There are enemies out there. But Jesus Christ has already been down this path. Verse 18, for Christ also, the also says, listen, he's there for us. He's there with us. Christ also hath once or once for all suffered for sins. Back in chapter 2, Peter said, follow Christ's example. And then Peter said, by the way, Christ did a whole lot of things you can't do. That is, we follow his example to the extent we can follow it. But his death was atoning. My suffering is just an echo of his. It's an application of his to my times. But his sufferings were once for all. And that's what Peter does again. Christ also has suffered. Look to him. Follow his steps. Oh, and by the way, there are some very unique things about his suffering. He suffered the just in the place of the unjust. That'll never be said of me. I have been justified, but I am not the just one. That's only Jesus. He took my place. I am able to suffer for him because he once for all suffered for me. He took my place on the cross. Spurgeon wrote, he suffered all the horror of hell. In one pelting shower of iron wrath, it fell upon him with hailstones bigger than a talent. And he stood until the black cloud had emptied itself completely. There was our debt, huge and immense. He paid the utmost farthing of whatever his people owed. I believe he paid more than what his... He paid every farthing what everyone owed. And now there is not so much as a farthing due to the justice of God and the way of punishment from any believer... And though we owe God gratitude, though we owe much to his love, we owe nothing to his justice. For Christ in that hour took all our sins past present and to come and was punished for them all there and then, that we might never be punished because he suffered in our stead. Amen? That's the power that is ours in our suffering. Because he has once suffered for us, the just for the unjust. Why did he do that? to bring us to God. That's the purpose of his suffering. And that's unique. And yet, it's a pattern. Because suffering is often how God brings people to himself. He used the suffering of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley as they were burned at the stake. And it spread the message across England, and people said, Bloody Mary is killing Latimer and Ridley? I wonder what that Latimer and Ridley guy believed. We, We need to find out because they died for it. And Reformation was spread by persecution as never before. Righteous suffering is often the means by which people are brought to God. Peter says, I'm sorry, Paul says in Colossians 1.24, My sufferings are filling up the afflictions of Christ. Now that's an unusual expression. Paul is not saying the sufferings of Christ were insufficient. He's saying they have one drawback. Not everybody knows about them yet. And I'm going to get those sufferings, I'm going to get the word out that he has also suffered the just for the unjust. I'm going to tell everybody I can. And in the process, I'm going to suffer. And when they see me suffering, righteous suffering, godly suffering, Christ-like suffering... That may be the means by which the afflictions of Christ are applied to their lives. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself and he has committed to us this word of reconciliation. We pray you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is, we have been given this message that can bring others to Christ. So Christ's suffering was purposeful, and it is powerful look how the verse ends being put to death in the flesh they killed him but he was brought to life by the spirit death did not have the final word for Christ suffering did not have the final word for Christ he was raised from the dead by the power of the spirit instated as son of God with power and so we have hope in our suffering too They can attack and kill our flesh. The Spirit will raise us. And so we can make proclamation through righteous suffering. And at 5 minutes till 10, I come to the hardest passage to interpret in the New Testament. Verse 19 says, By the Spirit, Jesus went and preached unto spirits in prison. These spirits were once, sometime means in the past, were once disobedient. When were they disobedient? When the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. I think that reference to long-suffering suggests that the people who are being disobedient are turning away a message of salvation while the ark is being built. So I'm I'm adopting an interpretation. There are 50 of them. I'm just going to tell you the one I'm adopting. In which the spirits in prison are spirits who are now locked away. Why are they locked away? Because when the word was preached to them, they rejected it. When? When God waited for perhaps 120 years while the ark was being prepared. Only a few... Listen to Noah, the preacher of righteousness. So Christ went by the Spirit and preached through Noah to people in Noah's day who rejected the message and died in the deluge. I think possibly that's what this means. I think that's a better interpretation than having Jesus go preach to angels in a holding cell. But I don't have time to discuss all the details. Suffering then... The suffering of Christ and the suffering of his servants like Noah is a vehicle for bringing a message of judgment and hope to people. Judgment if they refuse and hope to those who respond. In Noah's case, seven people. His wife, three sons, and their wives. This power, I believe, has been evidenced. I've seen it on a number of occasions. Let me give you one It was August 2005, a very dear friend of my son, who's now the assistant registrar, uh, was on the high school football team, was an outstanding player, great guy. He had attended church with our family on Sunday evening, and then two days later, while driving uh, to school, he was killed in a car accident on the first day of football practice. Uh, it, was, it was a hard thing for this whole community and for my son and our family and, of course, Mike's family. But there was a young man, Steve, who was dating a young lady who worked at a hairstyling salon. And they're married now, godly couple. And the night of the day Mike was killed, Steve went to the salon... And shared the story of this young man's death at the salon. And his now wife's friend, who was also a hairstylist, heard the story and was moved to hear about a young believer passing away and the hope that Steve could convey. And she said, I'd like to hear more about this. Came from a nominal Lutheran home, none of her family were believers. And Steve and his girlfriend took her under wing and continued to share the gospel with her. And a few months later, Kelly got saved. She came here and studied nursing. Graduated with her nurse's degree, met a young man here who's now a police officer, and and, uh, they are serving the Lord faithfully in eastern Wisconsin. Proclamation through suffering got her attention because believers don't suffer the same way citizens do. Citizens say, maximize pleasure, minimize pain. And we say, maximize Christ. And maybe that's gonna hurt. But there is triumph after righteous suffering. Verses 21 and 22. A few souls, just eight, were saved through the water. The like figure, wherein into baptism doth also now save us. What? Alright, so the Catholics and Lutherans are going to quote this one a lot. But let's look at it in context. Peter says, the waters of the flood were the judgment of God. People who go underwater die and don't come back. That is, the judgment ends it for them. They face the eternal judgment. But that didn't happen to Noah and seven other people. They were born through the water, by the ark. They were born up through the water. And Peter was reminded of baptism. He didn't know the Catholics and Lutherans and Episcopalians were going to misuse his statement for the rest of the church, history of the church. He was reminded of baptism and said, when you get saved and you're united to Christ, you come before a church and say, I want to associate with the finished work of Christ. I wanted to declare my justification. And they take you and they put you under water. You are put into the suffering that Christ experienced. You die with him. And if you're not in Christ, you should stay under the water and drown. You won't be saved through the water. But he rose. And so you rise. And the preacher lifts you up out of the water and says, you have been lifted out of the waters of judgment because you are in Christ. You can now walk in newness of life. Baptism is a victorious rite. It symbolizes my union with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. And Peter says, wow, when I think of the ark not going down but being rescued through these floodwaters, I think of believers who don't stay down but they, they rise to walk. They are dead. Delivered by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says at the end of verse 21. So we have triumph at our baptism. A triumph that means the judgment of God will never destroy us. We also have triumph after our baptism. Because Peter did realize that baptism saves is a strong way of putting it, so he modifies it right away. He says, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. Not the cleansing of your earthly, citizen-like ways of living. That is, this baptism is not what cleansed you. Christ cleansed you. Baptism symbolized it. Rather, it is the answer, or more likely, the appeal of a good conscience to God. That is, you come up from the water, and you say, Lord, from henceforth, give me grace to have a good conscience. Verse 16. To suffer not for my sins, but for serving you, for being godly. So think back to when you were baptized. You rose with Christ to walk in newness of life, and you publicly stated your intention of living with a conscience void of offense toward God and man. And that's going to bring the suffering But hey, you've been baptized in the sufferings of Christ. You've risen. They can't harm you. And the text ends with Christ's triumph. He rose from the dead. He has gone into heaven. He is at the right hand of God. All angels, authorities, and powers are in submission to him. So Christ brought salvation through suffering. He enabled proclamation during suffering. He promises victory over suffering. So this text is a call to faith to trust Christ in our suffering. It's a call to faithfulness to imitate Christ in our suffering. And it's a call to ministry to proclaim Christ through our suffering. And by God's grace, if you're in Christ, this text can be your testimony and mine. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to consider this together. Lord, there was much there, that we had to go through too quickly but thank you for a message that I hope will sink into our hearts thank you Lord for the victory that this text declares and it's not our victory it's Christ's victory thank you that he rose victorious and that when we are in him we rise victorious and we need not fear and we can honor and glorify Christ in our suffering help us to obey these commands on the basis of your grace and power and I ask it all in Jesus name Amen.